This is Ringler Radio, where you get all the latest news and information about the structured settlement industry from the experts in the know. Ringler Associates, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years and the only broker you need. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, The Hartford, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Now join Ringler Radio host Larry Cohen. Well, welcome to Ringler Radio, everyone. I'm Larry Cohen, your host and uh, head of Ringler Associates Northeast Operations, and we're awfully glad you could join us again today. Well, we're coming to you from San Francisco, California, where we're attending the 2009 AAJ Annual Convention. And there are a lot of interesting and important topics and issues being discussed out here. And uh, more than a few politicians, of course, are on hand as well. And uh, San Francisco, if you had never been here, of course, is a wonderful place to have a, have a convention. It's great. And the weather is absolutely gorgeous. Well, joining me today is my colleague, Doug Merritt. Doug's a settlement annuity specialist in the San Francisco Bay Area office, located right over in Walnut Creek, just about a stone's throw from where we're sitting. Hi, Larry. Thank you, Doug. And, uh, you know, Doug's been in this business for quite a while, has knowledge in a lot of the areas uh, surrounding uh, workers' comp, medical malpractice, product liability, all of the uh, the typical areas that handle uh, structured settlement uh, annuities. And, uh, Doug, you've been uh, you've been at this for a while, and uh, I, yes, know you're, I know you're doing a good job. 2001, yeah. Terrific. Well, our special guest today is Robert Wood. Rob, uh, from the firm of Wood & Porter, has an international reputation as a tax consultant, and uh, he's very, very well-versed in the tax treatment of litigation recoveries and has extraordinarily broad experience in corporate partnership and individual tax matters. He's a prolific author of articles and books, uh, too many to mention here, Rob, and he's been named to America's Best Lawyers by Forbes magazine, uh, and that's quite an honor. Well, today we're going to be drawing on his extensive expertise in the area of structured attorney fees. So, Rob, welcome to Ringler Radio. Thanks, Larry. Nice to be here. And in fact, I'm going to tell you, welcome back to Ringler Radio, because uh, I think we did a show a couple of years ago or so. That's that's uh, right. You're right, uh, as usual. <laughs> that's cool. Well, I can't think of a more important and interesting topic for lawyers to get their heads and their hands around than the structuring of attorney fees. And by now, everyone uh, is familiar with the structuring of the plaintiff settlement award and the advantages of that. But surprisingly, not all attorneys are even aware that they can structure their fees. And Rob, are you finding that that is the case? You're running into lawyers who don't really even understand that structured fees are, are part of the game. Yeah, no, it, it, it is. And it's sort of um, uh, for everyone in the structured settlement industry and certainly for the plaintiff's bar, I think it's hard to... Uh, it's easy to address specific things. If somebody has a specific question, can you do this or can you, is it necessary for the document to read a certain way? But it's, it's, I find kind of hard to start from ground zero and say, do you know about structured settlements? Do you know how it works? You know, sort of where do you begin? The dialogue is, is tough. Yeah. That, of course, that's part of the job of, that we do as brokers when we engage uh, at these mediations and these settlements. And you turn to the plaintiff attorney and say, have you considered uh, structuring your fees? And oftentimes you'll get, uh, yeah, I really have. I'd like to do it. I think it's a great idea. Other times you get a lot of puzzled looks uh, and others, uh, they don't even understand the process or the concept can even be done. So that's what our, what our hope today is that we can have a, a dialogue that's going to enable a lot of lawyers around the country to learn more about the opportunities they have with structured fees. Yeah, Rob, it's uh, essentially a deferred 
compensation plan? Can you maybe uh, broaden what are the benefits of that and how should it be used? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it is it is a deferred uh, compensation plan. Um, I mean, no question about it. It's a special kind of deferred compensation plan, of course, a non-qualified plan. And by that, I simply mean that it is not, uh, you know, a, a, an ERISA, Employer Retirement Income Security Act kind of pension plan. It's not special tax rules. It's a plain old pay me later kind of arrangement. And I think, again, to kind of go to the basic issues, um, any trial lawyer, uh, any plaintiff's lawyer who's on a contingent fee basis had, that's been doing it for a while, uh, even very successful ones, will experience spikes in their income, you know, up and down income, in that if their income is always up and it's a question of how far it is up, they may not look at structured fees, uh, which I think is a mistake that we'll come back to. But certainly in the case of lawyers who have one really good a year where they make lots of money, and then the next year they have trouble paying for uh, rent and basic things. Um, you know, can become a real a, a real financial and tax planning nightmare. And so, structuring fees is simply a manner of of uh, stretching payment out into the future. Well, you're right about uh, evening and leveling out income streams. Uh, obviously, uh, lawyers get these spikes. I've had a lot of situations where lawyers are. In the money in one year, and the next year they're borrowing money to really make their practice work. And one of the lawyers in our area, uh, what he's done is he's actually structured his fees to specifically cover his operating expenses in the office each year. And so that every year in the beginning of the year, typically in the first quarter, he's had enough in the structured fee scenario to enable him to really have gravy in terms of what he does the rest of the year. So that's a big plus for people who are involved in these kinds of spiky environments. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. And and I think, I mean, we, we tend to think of this maybe in kind of black and white terms about uh, structuring, uh, structuring versus not structuring. But of course, very common for people uh, to structure part of their recovery, just as it is in the case of the um, that uh, Ringler and uh, any other um, you know, structured settlement broker would do, look at structuring a part of a plaintiff's recovery. Lawyers have that flexibility too. So they may structure 10%, 20%, 50%, 80% uh, of their fee and, as you say, gear it toward what their, say, monthly operating expenses are um, on an ongoing basis. And that is is real smart. And, and also, I mean, another thing, that, and I've heard this numerous times from lawyers, they say something like, you know, I'm tired of, of not knowing what year to year is going to be, and I'm tired of, as you say, not knowing if my operating expenses are covered, and I want the luxury of doing the cases I want to do. Right. And so, in some ways, it can be a lifestyle kind of decision that uh, they're able to take cases that they like, and they don't have to necessarily look quite so much at the bottom line. Interesting point. Uh, just so they know how to know how to expect to treat that money as it comes in. Um, it's a fee that is uh, deferred and grows with interest over time. And, and that, that interest is taxable. Yeah, it is. I mean, if, if you think about it, um, the lawyer is, uh, you know, we spend a lot of time with structured settlements looking at uh, uh, tax issues. You know, is a, is a structure tax-free? I mean, is the recovery, a settlement or judgment tax-free? Is it excludable for personal physical injuries? 
Um, is it, um, you know, what about punitive damages? What about interest, deductibility of attorney's fees? We look at all these mix of issues. I mean, structured attorney's fees are actually pretty easy and easy in concept. The lawyer knows that he or she is paying tax. If they get a million dollar fee, they're going to pay tax on it. It's obviously taxable income. So the idea is why not spread that out over time and pay presumably tax at lower rates when they receive it and also have it grow on a tax-deferred basis. Going back to your, um, Doug, your question about deferred comp, it is a it is a type of deferred comp program. It's it's sort of like, uh, I don't know if this, if this uh, analogy helps the analysis much, but it's sort of like a an unrestricted IRA or something. There are no restrictions. You can have millions and millions and millions of dollars. I mean, interestingly, and I'm sorry to uh, get off topic, but when we when you talk about how, how great these things are, there was a, um, a proposal uh, a couple of months ago in tax notes by a couple of academics arguing that attorney's fee structures should be outlawed, that they're way too good a deal, uh, that they're unrestricted. Nobody else besides lawyers gets the – and in fact, not just lawyers, but contingent fee lawyers is able to do this. And it's way too good a deal. And I mean, the good news is I think these academics were not – you know, I mean, there's so many things going on in Washington now. I don't think that proposal will be seriously considered. But the fact that they target these things and say they're way too good a deal, we should outlaw them, you know, sort of perversely, it ought to make trial lawyers wake up and start doing this. What a selling point. Absolutely. I mean, it's, indeed. It's, ama- it's amazing. And, you know, you're right about uh, plaintiff attorneys being somewhat of a, uh, a class that's uh, specialized in this area. I mean, it's very interesting. And I'm uh, I'm always amazed at when someone finally realizes that they can take the full amount of their fee, buy an annuity, and have it deferred, rather than taking their fee in cash and having uh, f- almost fifty percent of it paid in taxes this year. Uh, it, to me, it's a, always been a no-brainer, and uh, you know some lawyers really wake up to that. I agree, Larry, uh, completely. And uh, and going back to what you said earlier, Rob, you had said that you know like the. Uh, like the claimant, which would structure part of it, the mm-hmm. attorney can structure part of it. Now, in the instance that the claimant decides not to structure any of their settlement, can the attorney still structure a portion of their fees? Yes. Now, and uh, the two of you who are uh, who are brokers uh, probably know this better than I do. Um, yes, absolutely. Certainly, there's no tax law reason you can't do it. I believe that it will restrict the number of life companies you can go to. Because if I'm not mistaken, you are there, Yeah, okay. There are some life companies that will say we will structure the lawyer's fees only if the client is also structuring. Um, but there are also some companies that that will do it no matter what. And as I say, there's no tax law restriction; it won't work. I mean, you can get into on the question you raise all sorts of gradations of of that too. So what that is, what if the client wants to structure a hundred thousand dollars and the lawyer wants to structure a million? You know, is is that enough? I mean, is there some threshold? And but but you know, analytically, absolutely, the lawyer can structure even if. He or she is the only one structuring. Yeah, you know, and some some life companies, I always had the feeling that they're almost doing it from a marketing standpoint. Uh, you can you can have the French fries, but only if you order the hamburger. <laughs> yeah, you know? that uh, that could be. <laughs> could be. Well, let's talk about the uh, amount of income that can be deferred in a structured fee arrangement. Uh, you know, there are statutory limits to the amount you can defer in a qualified retirement plan uh, and some of these four hundred one k's, but in a structured fee arrangement. Those things go away, don't they? Yeah, no, they, they do. I mean, again, it's it's unrestricted, which I guess to go back to the comment I made a few minutes ago, um, this is one of the things that the academics, two professors, tax professors argued about is 
uh, that, look, nobody else can do this. And if you have a very successful plaintiff's lawyer, um, I mean, you can structure a very small fee. You could structure $100,000 or less. Um, but you, but if you had a um, you know, fifty million dollar fee uh, in some kind of a huge uh, case, could you structure it? Absolutely. Is there a limit on how much you can structure? The answer is no. And I should say, and I, and I'm, I know that uh, we don't want to talk too much about uh, tax theory here, but but one thing I think uh, helps plaintiffs' lawyers understand why this is allowed, and and why they're sort of identified and allowed to do this, and really the only people that can do it. Is not because anybody at the IRS particularly likes trial lawyers um, or anyone in Congress necessarily for that matter. It really is about the concept of a contingent fee and when the fee is payable. And the, and the idea and the tax authorities, whether they're right or wrong, have consistently said this, is that a fee isn't payable until the case is really done. And that typically means settlement documents are signed. So even though as a practical matter, a lawyer who has earned a, let's say, a 40% contingent fee on a $10 million recovery, meaning a $4 million fee, he's been working on it, let's say, for the last five years. It's, uh, you know, it's gone to trial and settles on appeal, or it's, uh, you know, it's had extensive discovery. Whatever the facts are, virtually all the work is done. Notice I say virtually. Mm-hmm. Virtually everything is done. The lawyer really knows that even orally, the case settled uh, last night at mediation for $10 million. Has the lawyer earned his fee? The answer is absolutely not. Right. And that, of course, is why you can still structure. Well, now is uh, the time that all lawyers that are listening today should, should start really listening because we're going to talk about some of the specific requirements that all uh, structured fees need to have. And when I say listen carefully, a friend of mine has a great phrase. He says, you should listen as if you were a first-time skydiver in a parachute packing class. And I think that's pretty attentive, attentive listening. So, Rob, let's start. What should a lawyer's contingency agreement uh, with the plaintiff say regarding the ability to structure attorney's fees? What should that document say? Well, I don't want to give any trade secrets here. I have my own sort of special uh, way of saying this. But but essentially, um, and, and, and by the way, I also should say, that it is not clear, and you'll get differences of opinion from tax lawyers like me uh, around the country about sort of how important this is. But certainly, optimally, I think everyone agrees that it's appropriate if the contingent fee agreement says something about the lawyer can elect to receive his or her fees on a periodic payment basis, not in cash. You know, how critical that phrase is, as I say, is a subject of debate. I will say that um, that with lawyers that, that will listen and that uh, many of them have this kind of as a stock provision, as you can hear, it doesn't cost anything to say that. It's not like you're obligating yourself right. to accept contingent fees. Uh, the other thing that's very frequently done is um, sort of, and again, I revert to my comment about the fee isn't earned yet, very frequently right before a settlement, you can amend the fee agreement to clarify something. It's not backdating a document. It's a fee agreement that might have been executed four or five years ago with the client, uh, and you say, uh, we're amending it effective as of the original execution date, dating it today, clarifying that the lawyer may choose to take his fee, elect to take his fee on a periodic payment basis. Yeah, and as long as that amendment is accomplished prior to any of the settlement documents being signed, I think that's the general consensus that that's still an efficient way to do it. Absolutely. Okay. Um, moving to the, the the back end of this, you know, the contingency is at the 
beginning of the relationship between the claimant and the lawyer. At the back end, do you have any comments about the language that we put into the settlement docs? Yeah, well, it was certainly the settlement, uh, and this is one of these things that you shouldn't, you know, lawyers who are listening shouldn't try this at home. Um, it's something that you need uh, to get certainly um, a structured settlement broker involved. I mean, you need to get access to the life insurance markets, obviously, right. and, and that's one way of doing it. And and most brokers, um, I think, certainly have been through structured legal fees before, are going to be able to supply the sort of requisite language. So essentially, though, the settlement agreement is going to say, or should say, um, the list of periodic payments that the lawyer is going to get. So it's going to say the client... Uh, you know, the defendant is paying and the client is $10 million. The client is going to get $6 million. That may or may not be structured. As you said, the client, you know, hopefully will structure, may choose not to, may structure part of it. And there'll be structured periodic payment language covering the client's money. And likewise, there'll be structured periodic payment language covering the lawyer's money. Interesting. Well, that's very important in those settlement agreements. And there's some boilerplate language that I think every Every settlement agreement uh, has that helps protect against uh, those constructive receipt issues, which we're going to talk about in a few seconds. Uh, Let's talk now about another issue that lawyers often raise, and that is the status of their corporate their corporate status of the law firm and how that works. Some corporations, some law firm corporations, are C corps. Some are S corps. First of all, does the status of the corporation, being a C or an S, have any impact or any effect on uh, the ability to receive fees on a structured basis? No, no, no effect. Um, and, and you're asking about C corps and S corps, and, and you're right. I know you and I recently had this issue come yes. up um, with something. Um, the answer is it doesn't matter. I mean, it, it does sort of complicate it um, in a little, in a, in a few ways, uh, but it doesn't matter if. In terms of ability to structure, a lawyer who is a self-employed solo lawyer can structure. A lawyer who practices in a C-corp, either as, an, uh, as a partner, a shareholder, or employee can structure. A lawyer who's a partner in a partnership can structure. Um, it, it doesn't, in terms of the, the mechanics, uh, depending on who you talk to, you can get uh, sort of a little more exotic um, or, or not. And, and indeed, that the entity can structure. I mean, this is, in my experience, sort of atypical, but you could have uh, the law firm of, uh, you know, Smith, Jones, and, uh, and Abraham, three lawyers, uh, you know, or it could be a thousand lawyers in a, in a, you know, in a law firm. Uh, and the firm can structure its fees and, and have the money come into the firm and then be paid out of the firm if it wants. As I say, in my experience, that's atypical because yes. most lawyers plaintiff's lawyers in particular are, uh, you know, kind of iconoclasts. They want to go their own way, and they certainly don't want to be tied down to one law firm for the next 20 years. You know, but I've had uh, lawyers say, uh, when, when asked, do they structure their fees, they'll say, well, no, I'm in a partnership, and I have partners. And then they have to explain that, you know, you as an individual partner in that firm can structure your partnership share of that, of that fee, which is, which is true. Now, let's talk back, let's go back again to the contingency fee agreement. Because that's the that's the actual agreement that the client, the the injured party, signs with the with the law firm as to how that's going to all come together. There's sometimes questions raised as to who did the client who did the claimant hire. Should the contingency fee agreement show that the the hiring took place not just Smith and Jones Law Firm but Joe Smith and uh, Mary Jones as well? Because at the end of the day, if Mary Jones wants to 
structure the fee, and there's no mention of her as an individual as being part of the signator to that to that contractual arrangement, could that somehow get in the way of a, a structured fee arrangement? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think the issue you're raising, and you're right, it occasionally comes up. Um, I actually think it should come up more than it does. Um, I, and again, I know Larry, you and I have talked about this before. Um, I, I think that the, let's take the, the sort of classic case, Smith and Jones, and, and leaving aside whether Smith and Jones is a partnership or a C Corp or an S Corp or an LLP or whatever it is, but Smith and Jones is a law firm. Um, Smith and Jones, you know, enters into the fee agreement to represent uh, Paul Plaintiff in a case, big case, uh, catastrophic injury case, let's say. Um, and and then, you know, we get to five years later, the case is settling for, let's say, a very large amount of money. And then, you know, uh, Smith wants to structure Jones doesn't or vice versa. I mean, as you say, if the fee agreement simply says Smith and Jones is representing Paul Plaintiff, then from an income tax perspective, which is the only way that I look at it, there's no question who is taxable on the money, assuming the fee is paid. It's the entity. So I, I guess to go back to your question about C-Corps and S-Corps, um, because it's a little easier, I think, if it's a partnership, a flow-through entity. But let's say it's a C-Corp, a professional corporation. Well, many of your listeners know that a, with a C-Corp, professional corporation, and there's still many of those around, generally what happens is, the money comes in and you pay it out. You pay it out as, as, as salary, typically. Um, and so the C-Corp um, you know, ends up with no income. Well, what if you're sort of bypassing the C-Corp entirely and just saying, well, we're going to give it to the individuals, you know, the, the two shareholders? Um, the, the concern and this is the concern is, you know, have you, uh, have you confused it? Um, I think arguably, yes. Uh, there aren't any cases of the IRS taking on that kind of an arrangement and saying you've ignored the entity. I, I think it's really easy to fix. You already, in your question, suggested one way of fixing it, which is having a fee agreement that says uh, that Paul Plaintiff is being represented not merely by Smith & Jones, Inc., but also by you know Tom Smith and Mary Jones. Or the attorneys at Smith & Jones, because there may be several, and uh, you know more than just the two of them. Right. I mean, I would say, t- to me... The, and, and again, the, you can have the entity structure. And I've seen this done, but, but as I say, rarely, um, the entity structure and then have all the annuity payments coming into the firm and then the firm paying them out. Once again, I don't think that's terribly common. Um, and, but what you suggest is a good idea. I think even better is to expressly address these issues in some kind of a, what I would, what I call when I draft these things, a payment accommodation agreement or allocation agreement, where it's the entity and the lawyers agreeing that, well, really, this is the firm's income, but we're going to treat it and sort of book it as, um, and I've worked with some accountants on this, as income to the firm, but we're going to separately allocate it to the individual lawyer and it's going to bypass the entity, and that's sort of his share of the income for that year. So if there's some uh, rather exotic arrangements that a law firm wants to engage in, uh, I think the, the good advice would be to get your mind around that and maybe talk to someone like yourself to yeah. really get that. Yeah, and out. I mean, just in sort of order of magnitude, it's not like these are terribly complicated no. things. I mean, the complicated part, in my experience with firms, or the contentious part, uh, can simply be dividing up who's going to get what, yeah. which certainly isn't a tax issue. No. But if it's 
you know, if it's a $10 million fee and there are a bunch of lawyers and they're haggling over amounts, they've got to come to a resolution on who's going to get what. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, it can be a a matter of a a very small, you know, number of lawyer hours. Um, You know, I'm talking order of uh, maybe a, a couple thousand dollars at the most to draft up some kind of an agreement that will, in my view, fix the problem. Yeah. Very good advice. Satisfy everything. Well, one other question that comes up periodically, and uh, life companies treat it differently, but uh, your perspective would be helpful, is is the beneficiary. Can a beneficiary uh, be changed in the attorney fee scenario, and uh, is it better to be irrevocable or not? Yeah, it, it, it's certainly better um, to have it irrevocable. And, and I, I guess uh, your question means maybe we should cover a little bit more fundamentally, you know, what what the arrangement is. I mean, one of the great things, which I, I guess I haven't said yet about structured attorney's fees is it's it's the same thing that's great about any structured settlement, which is infinite flexibility. You know, you can say, I don't want to be paid anything for the next 20 years. I want it to start then and then go for, you know, five years or go for 10 or go for 15 or, you know, I guess I've never seen this, but I guess you could say, you know, I want every leap year to have no payments. I mean, you can almost do anything you want. Which, sure. which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can have extra big payments in years that you think you might have kids in college or, or something, you know, extra expenses. Um, so you can do all these things. Now, you just raised a question about beneficiaries. And you certainly can say, and, you know, I'm entitled to this stream of money. What happens if, you know, I get hit by a truck or something? Uh, you do designate a beneficiary. Um, and the, the, certainly the, from my, from my viewpoint, um, and I guess I'm not sure which life companies I'm allying myself with here, right. but from my viewpoint, designating an irrevocable beneficiary is better than, um, you know, the not, uh, I do think if push comes to shove, cause life circumstances change, if you structure fees and then five or 10 years later, um, you know, I, marital status may change. There may be other changes in life. Um, and you may want to, um, uh, you may want to uh, the the ambulance going by. It, it may be coming for me. Yeah, um, but the circumstances may change, and so you may need to change the beneficiary. And my experience is usually you can. Well, in that in that regard, would would the designation of the estate of the lawyer be sufficient in terms of uh, the so-called irrevocability that you cannot change it from that, but in the, in the will that the individual may have, he can change it around to his new wife? Yeah, I think that works. I mean, I've certainly seen it done, but I've also heard people argue about that one. Mm-hmm. So, I, but I believe that works. I mean, assuming the life company accepts it, again, from a tax perspective, it's, it's okay. And one, one other thing that, again, I guess I fault myself for not saying up front, which is we're talking about the great benefits of these things. Well, you know, what are, and you asked me some questions about the fee agreement and Doug asked me about the settlement agreement. What, what is sort of a fundamental restriction? And this was, this is not necessarily, well, I would put this in the settlement agreement ordinarily anyway, but it's also in the life company documents, which is, you know, you can't accelerate, you can't defer and so on. So, I mean, one of the, and I guess I have to say this as a, it's, it's just a fact of life. Maybe it's a bad thing, but it's, it's there. In order to get these great benefits of structuring fees, the lawyer, you know, it's not a bank account. If the lawyer thinks about it, decides what I really want is no payments for 10 years, and then I want it to pay, you know, level payments every month for the rest of my life, that's fine. You lock it in, and that's the payment you're going to get. And short of, you know, factoring or something like that, um, that's what you're going to get. You know, you can't just change it every 10 minutes. It just doesn't work that way. Absolutely. And uh, 
you know, it's like everything else in life. There are some restrictions that come along the way. And, uh, but well, the big- it, yeah, no, I'm sorry to interrupt. And, and there, there it's restrictions, but it's also most people, I think, if they're thinking of a structured fee arrangement as regularizing their income and, and, and maybe um, serving as a kind of, again, unrestricted retirement benefit. Because as you pointed out, Larry, retirement plans are all in 401ks and all that all have very severe number limits. We're talking about unlimited money here. And, the, and it's not as though they're not going to have other assets in all likelihood. Right. I mean, the stream of payments is one enormously important tool. And to me, the fact that you have to lock it in is not such a big deal. It's, I mean, that's that's the price you pay for the uh, for the ability to do this. And you all know the what? Benefits. You know what? To be honest, uh, attorneys are really no different than, than claimants in that regard. That yep. uh, they can dissipate money with the best of them. So the fact that they can't maybe, really get to it, maybe it's a, better. It's, a, it's a better. better. <laughs> it's a better thing. That's what I like to tell them. And the other thing, of course, is uh, those four hundred one ks that they have there on the side. I mean, a lot of those four hundred one ks, as you've seen in the recent environment of the stock market, they've gone down substantially in value. Whereas these annuity payments that are out there are being paid by these life companies just as they're stated on the paper, and they're going to continue to get those benefits. So that's a real plus. Well, let's take a quick break right now, and uh, we'll come right back and talk some more about this uh, very important topic with, I guess, nobody else better to talk about it with, who's Rob Wood, our tax expert from San Francisco. We'll be right back. This is Ringler Radio. Legal information, trends, and topics from Ringler Associates, the undisputed leader in structured settlements for more than 30 years. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Experience counts. Over 140,000 cases structured. This is Ringler Radio from Ringler Associates, placing more than $20 billion in structures over the past 30 years at one of the few companies that truly enjoys the trust of all parties in the settlement process. This is Ringler Radio, celebrating three years on the Legal Talk Network with topics important to the legal community. Did you know you could download Ringler Radio to your iPod? Just go to iTunes and subscribe to Ringler Radio. It's free. Did you know the number of listeners to Ringler Radio doubled in 2008? Thanks to our loyal listeners and welcome to all our new listeners as well. Welcome back to Ringler Radio. I'm your host, Larry Cohen. Again, glad you joined us. Uh, We're out here in San Francisco and along with my co-host, Doug Merritt from uh, Walnut Creek. We're here with tax attorney Rob Wood, who also lives and practices right here in San Francisco. Well, Rob, this city has been inundated with uh, lawyers this week, mostly uh, plaintiff lawyers, actually, who really need to listen to this show about structuring their fees. I've heard you say uh, a lot about the process uh, of, of structuring the fees. The whole process involved in it is important. And every attorney must elect to defer fees before they're earned. We, we spoke about that earlier to avoid running into uh, constructive receipt issues. Let's just make sure we repeat that again. Uh, what we really mean is it all has to be done. It all has to be agreed to prior to the settlement documents being signed. Let's, let, let's make sure we understand that. And uh, let's also talk about another thing, and that is that these annuity companies, the, the life companies, they require lawyers to sign certain documents as well, don't they? 
tell us what those documents typically are. Uh, most of us know the hold harmless agreements that have to be signed that say to a lawyer, uh, look, if the IRS ever challenges this, the life companies wants to be held harmless on, on these issues, and everybody understands that. What about some of the actual tax forms they need to sign? Yeah, well, I mean, typically there's a request for a taxpayer ID number that would need to be signed because the uh, from a tax perspective, uh, just on a simplistic level, if the lawyer is entitled to a million-dollar fee now, and I guess I use the word entitled in kind of a funny way. You just mentioned constructive receipt, again, the tax concept. Yes. I think we all know, and certainly the lawyer knows, uh, that – he or she has really almost, almost, almost earned that fee. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything's really happened except the documents aren't signed. And again, that's the critical tax sort of linchpin here. The fee is not earned and therefore the lawyer is not in either actual or constructive receipt of the money. So um, the lawyer is going to say right to the life insurance company, he's going to, with consultation with a broker, determine how the lawyer wants the money, paid when, over what period of time, sometimes joint survivor with their spouse, uh, and then payments are going to start. And when the payments start, off in the future at some point, they're going to be um, income to the lawyer at that point. And so the life company is going to, when it pays the amount, let's say it's starting to pay at $100,000 a year starting in you know year 20, uh, 20 years from now, and it goes $100,000 a year for the rest of the lawyer's life, that $100,000 is income then, 20 years from now. They're mm-hmm. going to get a 1099 form for that income 20 years from now. And, and that's because at the time of the execution of this whole structured fee arrangement, they signed a W-9 document or they signed a W-4 potentially a document, uh, right. depending on the life company's uh, uh, requirements. Right. And they set that up for the future. Yeah, we talk about all the great benefits of the deferred compensation plan, and I know I run up against it quite a bit, and I know Larry does as well, but when we, we get in touch with the attorney's accountants, and uh, they usually haven't heard of this concept, and a lot of times don't even believe it because of the uh, great tax setups that they create. You know, what What is the best way that you use to quiet the uncertainties or address their concerns about this deferred compensation setup? Boy, I'm not sure there's an easy way. I mean, it's one that does come up, and it is sort of a, a funny, uh, ironic, I guess, a circumstance that that you are you're trying to allay concerns um, and simultaneously trying to tell them something is really great and they ought to do it, or at least they ought to consider it. Um, and at the same time, you know, you're trying to allay the concerns of an accountant or personal tax plan or whoever it is. But but accountants raise a lot of these issues, um, and sometimes they're the accountants are the ones saying wait a minute, there's no way you can do this. This is way too good to be true. Yeah, Basically, right. they're saying to the lawyer, I know that you've already earned this money. I know you have that mediation. I know everybody shook hands and agreed on the $10 million settlement. Been working on this case for five years. There's no way that you can somehow push this off into the future just by signing some you know, some documents. Um, and then sort of perversely, uh, you can sort of use that argument against them saying, well, you know, if it's so, if it's so, you know, if I can prove to you that it works, um, you know, are you willing to do it? And um, but but there, I mean, the best case to show them, really, the only case uh, still is the child's case, which was a, a tax court case about ten years ago, uh, which was affirmed by the Eleventh Circuit. The IRS has not had another case; uh, they've not brought another attorney's fee case. Um, last year, uh, two thousand eight, there was a private letter ruling uh, that, uh, which you you guys are certainly well yes. aware of, yes. dealing with non qualified structures 
which was, I think, important for the structured settlement industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and that case, or that ruling, pardon me, that ruling cited the child's case several times. So I think many people, myself included, believe that the IRS, um, although there was some concern the IRS didn't like legal fee structures, uh, that the IRS has certainly accepted them now. Um, and I think, provided that your documents are good, um, that you sort of cross the proverbial T's and dot the proverbial I's, which is one reason you use professionals and, you know, don't try to reinvent the wheel here. I think the risk of attack is is pretty darn small. Well, you're right about that. I think Childs is, uh, has become um, acceptable so much uh, by the IRS. I mean, they're, they're raising it, they're, they're referencing it, they're, they're citing it. Um, and I think that those, you're right, those uh, lawyers who follow and those brokers, of course, and, uh, and others in, in the process that follow the, the, the rules of Childs are on pretty solid ground these days. Uh, let's talk about the concept of using brokers in this process. Obviously, that's what we do. And uh, we feel we bring, obviously, some value here because of the experience that we have. Uh, you don't ever uh, think these lawyers should be out there doing it on their own and trying to muddle through this process without really getting good advice from, from other folks. No. You know, a lot of lawyers have egos. They think they, they know how to do things. Yeah, no, and, and no, you're certainly right about, about that. And I think successful plaintiff's lawyers may even have bigger egos than many other lawyers. <laughs> um, uh, I think that, you know, it kind of comes with the territory. Uh, you, you know, sort of you know how to assess cases and how to woo juries and, you know, convince insurance companies and defendants to settle and this kind of thing. Uh, but but absolutely, I mean you. I mean number one, you've got to have um, access to the life markets because because of getting the annuities to purchase. So um, I mean you need a broker. I don't think, and uh, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think even if you somehow could bypass brokers and go direct to the life companies, no. I don't think you'd save any money because I think I, I'm, no, you can't. And first of all, they won't allow it because okay. it just, uh, you know, they don't want to uh, have to deal with people who really aren't in the process of the ex- having the expertise to be able to bring them things that are already done right. You know, they'd, right. they'd, they'd be inundated with uh, a lot of uh, a lot of things that are going to be uh, not not in, not correct. Right. So, so I mean, to me, the, the and I, I guess I'll, I'll say this, and hopefully, uh, I guess since we're on the radio and no one can see, you can club me with something if you want. <laughs> but, but to me. The only stupid question you don't that the plaintiff's lawyer doesn't ask the broker is, you know, the only stupid question they ask is the one they don't ask. I mean, what they should do is say, look, I really don't know how I want this money payable. Can you run me a bunch of projections? Right. And I'm, I'm sure both of you see a lot of this, but but it shouldn't be, in my view, simply, you know, oh, let's do it, you know, 20 years level payments or something. Be creative. Think about, and obviously part of the broker's job is, uh, you know, t- to be a pest, frankly, and to push the lawyer and say, well, you know, give me some more information, give me some more information. Well, how about this? You know, how about this instead? How about that instead? What about your kids? What about your spouse? I mean, right. think about all the angles because that's the beauty of these things, you know, and, and I guess going back to, I suppose, the only disadvantage, you've got to lock it in. Well, right. before you lock it in, you want to think about all the choices and, and you can't do that without a broker. You've, you've said it very well. Here's a frequently misunderstood topic uh, in question, uh, Rob. I, I'm assuming that all the ambulances going by, that you guys personally arranged this. Well, we did. <laughs> we, we, we did. We, we actually have uh, accidents happening all over town, so we can structure these cases. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
here's again a frequently misunderstood area uh, around the area of around the issue of structured fees, and that is when you have a non-personal injury case, when you have a case that doesn't fall under what is what four hundred one and you know one hundred four a. I'm so I'm right. sorry. Uh, what's the story with structuring fees with non-personal injury cases? Yes, I mean you can you can absolutely do it. I mean, once again, and I suspect both of you have a, have your finger more on the pulse of which life companies do what than than I do. Um, but absolutely, you can do it. That is, if it is a just to take an example, a, a big uh, race or gender or discrimination case or something a wrongful termination case. Uh, you see a lot of these in the employment context. And the ruling that I alluded to earlier, the private letter ruling, involved a, a woman in a uh, discrimination case who was structuring her recovery, which is taxable but paid over time, um, lawyers do the same things. Now, again, which life company you go to may vary because I think um, some of them, um, and, and it's a question of their mechanics, how they have their assignment company set up, um, but absolutely you can do it. Uh, you don't need it to be a personal physical injury case. Let's kind of wrap this up, Rob, with one final thought, and that is, what are you seeing? What do you foresee out there as changes in tax law that could challenge the status of attorney fee deferrals? You seeing anything on the horizon out there? Boy, that's tough. I mean, uh, I think everyone is aware with the political climate and the economy that uh, tax rates need to go up. Um, well, I guess I shouldn't say everyone agrees on that. I think everyone agrees that they will go up, whether they need to or not, I guess is a separate question. Um I think there are some things like higher capital gains rates, which I've been, I guess, not very accurately projecting for some years, thinking that that was going to change. I think I think the writing's on the wall. That will change. In terms of is something going to happen on attorneys' fee structures, um, I'm not aware of anything. And um, I don't have a particularly good crystal ball, but I'm certainly not aware that there's any movement to change them. I did allude to and I think I've written about it. Uh, I think there's a brief article on my website on this, which is woodporter.com, which you can download for free, commenting on the proposal by the academics that I mentioned. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But, but honestly, I don't think that that's going to go anywhere. Um, you know, these th- there are an infinite number of proposals being made to the tax law all the time, sure. and, and a very very small percentage of them uh, actually gets enacted. So. I don't think there's much fear of, of that happening. We take that as good news. <laughs> I yeah, think so, yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. So all of you out there, lawyers, if you're young lawyers and uh, you're starting your practice, uh, you can start thinking about putting a little piece of each fee out into the future. I spoke to a, uh, a lawyer today who had a chance back in 1989 to uh, defer his, the fee for 20 years out, which would have happened right now. He would have been receiving huge amounts of money on a deferred fee and took it as cash. And he was telling me he bought a boat, <laughs> he took a trip and did some other things. I think he, maybe his second wife, and the money's gone. So I mean, spent. just like everybody else, it's, well, it happens uh, it's so amazing. often. Yeah, well, actually, and, and this isn't my role here, but I, if I can, I want to step out of character as a tax lawyer for a minute. I, I think t- to me, and you did ask me about uh, objections that accountants or other advisors might make saying, gee, this is too good to be true or you know, this can't work or something. Um, but, but to me, the, the, the most prevalent objection here or the most prevalent resistance that lawyers have to doing these things, um, I don't know exactly what you call it, but it's not dissimilar to the example you just gave. It's the, um, well, I want to spend the money or I think uh, perhaps even more prevalent is 
I can do better myself. Yeah. And and frankly, many accountants and financial advisors, whether they do it out of um, you know altruism because they really think they're right, or maybe out of jealousy, they don't want their role to be displaced, whatever mm-hmm. it is, mm-hmm. it's the we'll look at annuity rates. And yeah, okay, great, it's a great deal. Great, you know, I'm not saying it's a not a bad, you know, I'm not saying it's a a bad deal. It's a great deal to defer the income, stretch it out over time, pay tax later, let it grow tax free. That's all great, but it's going to be growing at whatever it is, 5%, 6%. And, you know, that's not enough. Well, heck, my brother-in-law is a stockbroker. He's going to get me 30%. I I, I, think uh, Bernie Madoff was 12% was the uh, return. (laughs) Yeah, and and that's a good comment. I mean, whatever the comment is, and I'm sure both of you have heard this um, and seen it happen. And it's not that, and it puts, I think, everybody, um, I've been in an awkward position sometimes. My position is to say, well, look, I mean, you ought to check that out, but if you, can, if you can get it, if you really believe it, fine. I mean, you know, and, and it may be less efficient from a tax perspective to pay tax now and to invest on a post-tax basis, which is going back to the role of the broker, why right. you should ask the broker to produce a lot of paper and to think about it all. But I would just say, and Larry, the example you use of the guy who bought a boat and did this and that, yeah. and then the money's gone, I think – you know, in a in a financial plan, and I'm not the world's best financial planner, even for myself. I would just say that think about the alternatives and don't sort of get carried away with any one thing. The idea of structuring and 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 the, and the farther out you structure, like any deferred product, the better it is. You know, the, if you structure for five years, it's not nearly as attractive as if you structure for thirty years because of the benefits of compounding. So I would just say. And it's a simple point, but to me, the biggest objection to these is not the technical. It's not the accountant being able to prove that it doesn't work because they they can't. Yeah, it's the fundamental um, psychological too. Yeah, yeah it absolutely. Is. Very it good really words to live by. That part, part yeah. of that is absolutely true. Well, with that, I think we'll we'll close. I want to thank you, uh, Rob, for uh, some tremendous insight into this into this product and into this concept. Uh, Doug, thank you again for joining thank you, us. So, thank Rob, you, Rob. If, Rob, you mentioned your website. Uh, if people want to get a hold of you, they can go to that website. Why don't you repeat that? Sure. Um, yeah, the the um, the website address is www.woodporter. That's w-o-o-d-p-o-r-t-e-r.com. There are um, and my contact information, phone number, and email address uh, are there, and you're welcome to get a hold of me. Um, and you'll also find a lot of articles on these subjects you can download for free. You have written extensively, phenomenal, extensively phenomenal on it. Phenomenal research. Yeah. Doug, how would people get a hold of you? Same thing. Online at ringlerassociates.com. Can be reached. Any questions, always. Tremendous. And uh, all of you first-time listeners, remember, every Ringler radio show can be downloaded from our website, ringlerassociates.com, or from the Legal Talk Network at legaltalknetwork.com, or from iTunes. You can actually uh, download this onto your iPod, and as you jog around the uh, reservoir, you can listen on those little uh, earbuds. Well, again, Rob, thank you very much for uh, all of your expertise. And to all of you out there, thanks for listening, and go out and make it a great day. Thanks for listening to Ringler Radio. Ringler Associates, experience counts. Since 1975, Ringler Associates has provided the finest structured settlement services to injured parties and their attorneys. Ringler Radio is made possible in part by the life markets that issue structured settlement annuities, including Allstate, American General Structured Settlements, The Hartford, Liberty Life, MetLife, New York Life, John Hancock, and Prudential. Prudential.